Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, this podcast episode is brought to you by our sponsor, St. Gaster. So are you looking at getting your product into the hands of the right people, the people that are going to absolutely love it? Did you know that podcast advertising is literally 4.4 times more effective than the traditional display type of advertising? So if you're looking at really using podcast advertising, you may want to connect with Sencaster. So they've created this thing. It's called the Sencaster Podcast Marketplace, where you can connect as a brand or a company with the right type of creators. And again, you know, via Sencaster, you can connect with people like myself, where essentially we are putting ads of the brands and the companies that we absolutely love. So again, if you are interested in doing this, just go to sen.ai forward slash dealmakers1, and that is a number one. And again, the team at Sencaster will be able to guide you in the right direction. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So super exciting founder that we have today with us. Uh, he's been a founder now that has built something from nothing and recently took his company public. We're going to be learning a lot about that journey, what it took to take it all the way to where it is now with hundreds of employees ringing that bell. I mean, super exciting stuff. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Spencer Skates. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, fantastic to be here. I'm really excited to to share the Amplitude story with uh, some uh, you know future entrepreneurs. Hopefully, my lessons can be of help. It's been a very crazy journey. We've been through it uh, over a decade at this point. Um, so yeah, let's let's go ahead and get into it. Over a decade. I mean, I can't even imagine in dog years what that is, eh? because startup years are like insane. But we'll, but we'll get that in into that in just a little bit. So originally born and raised in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? It was great. You know, I wasn't exposed to kind of the tech world and, and programming that early on. And so, you know, pretty normal childhood. You know, I ended up going to local elementary school and, and local high school there. Um, the one thing that started to happen when I was about 12 is my mom took me on a trip to visit some of her family. She's from originally from Malaysia. And everyone there was very into building their own computers and creating their own little setups and, you know, really into kind of the technology scene. It inspired me to say, okay, hey, I'd really love to kind of build a computer of my own. And so um, that was really my first real introduction to, to technology and programming. As a result of doing that, I started to get uh, pretty handy with computers and ended up creating my own IT support business when I was 16 and would just, you know, I put up flyers around the neighborhood uh, saying, hey, I can give you computer help if you're interested. I remember I, I was charging $30 an hour, which for a high school student at that time was an incredible amount of money. And so I was making like two or three times uh, some of my peers who were kind of working other jobs. And it was just, it was an awesome, it was, a, it was an awesome experience. You know, I got to learn how to work with customers firsthand, run your own, you know, a little bit of your business. We didn't, we didn't make that much money, but um, it was, uh, it, it was a lot of money for a, a high school student at the time. And it really helped me understand how like, you know, there's a lot of people out there that have technology needs. And if you're able to take some of your technical expertise and uh, take that to, you know, to, to different situations, you can do, you can do very, very well, because there's just so much demand for 
uh, technology and understanding it and all of that. And it's, it's a big world out there. And you ended up going into MIT and what you studied was bioengineering. I mean, that sounds extremely complicated. I mean, what, what, what was that? Yeah, bioengineering was actually a new major at MIT at the time. We were the third class to go through it. And the, the reason I did bioengineering was because, you know, if you're a smart and ambitious young person, I thought you would go into uh, academic research. Um, you know, bo both my parents are involved in academic research in some form. And, you know, I thought, you know, I was the path that, that you did. And I didn't really know, like, you know, even though I'd done that IT support business, I didn't know that you could make, you know, a whole career out of the technology thing or what that would even look like. The, so anyway, so bioengineering was great. You know, I learned a whole bunch. But one of the actually really funny and ironic things is most people from that, uh, from our program, like if I look at my classmates, there are about 20 of us in that program who are my year. Most of them actually have ended up in the technology industry later on. And so I've gone on to become like one of my friends is a software engineer, uh, director of software engineering at GitHub. Other of them have started companies. And so, you know, everyone's kind of transitioned away from doing bio biology where, you know, frankly, I think that the industry was just a little bit too early when we were starting out and uh, I've ended up in software. Uh, my, my, my transition was in my uh, sophomore year of college, I did this one programming competition called Battle Code. Um, for those of you who don't know Battle Code, it's MIT's largest programming competition. You get like 300 or so different teams. And the way it works is it's over the course of a month. There's a month-long break that we have in January called IAP, where you can kind of do whatever you want as an MIT student. And one of the things that they have is this programming competition. And the way the competition is, is set up is they release a video game and you're supposed to write an artificial intelligence for that video game and you compete with other other people's uh, uh, bots. And, you know, they have a tournament, they have a bunch of different tournaments over the course of the competition. And the goal is to be the most successful bot uh, out of everyone else and to beat, you know, your, your competitors. And it uh, this was my first real introduction to the world of like, hey, maybe I could do, uh, you know, software as a career. And it combined a whole lot of things I loved. It combined video games and it combined competition and it combined programming. And it's like all these things that I just got a tremendous amount of joy out of. Um, and so sophomore year, I did the competition for the first time. We totally sucked. You know, we were just, you know, we were the bottom barrel of the teams. You know, we were barely uh, trying to figure out how to scrape the thing together. Um, but what I saw was that a lot of people who had gone through the competition would end up doing really amazing things in their careers. So they'd go on to work at, you know, high frequency trading firms or go on to work at big tech companies. And one of the other careers that that came out of it was starting your own company and being a, a software uh, entrepreneur. Um, the founders of Dropbox, uh, Drew and Arash, uh, both had been involved in the competition before I joined it. Um, you know, there's a bunch, Aaron Iba was one other one. There were, there were a bunch of other folks that had gone through the competition and gone on to create very successful companies. And I was like, wow, you know, that's really cool. I didn't know that, you know, the same sort of skills that you'd use in this programming competition, uh, you know, could be applied to, to building a company. Maybe I can actually make a career out of this technology thing, you know, which I just had no exposure and no idea to before. And then so my junior year, we were like, okay, I'm going to do everything I can to do really well at this competition and prove that I can be really successful in this industry. And so I spent the month before the competition studying on the previous year's codes and doing just lots of practice. I just tried to recruit the best team I could. So I got my roommate, Steve, to join. Um, you know, I got a few other folks to join us. 
I got like I bought a whiteboard for my room so we could do whiteboard coding in the room and, and plan out how how we were looking at things. And I made sure to set up so I had nothing else going on during the month of the competition. You know, I like, yeah, like I, I like wouldn't go see friends. I wouldn't go to parties. I, you know, we'd just be like, make sure to set up so I could work from like, you know, 10 a.m. in the morning to midnight at night. Um, so, you know, you could do 14 hour days, you know, back to back through the entire month. And I got so, it was so much fun. It was, it was one of the highlights of, of my college experience. You know, we got really into it. You know, we got to know some of the other top teams, um, kind of at, as adversaries, you know, I, you know, all, all sorts of, all sorts of crazy. And I, I remember there's this, you know, people got really into the competition. There's this one team that would like send one of their teammates over to, to our place to like purposely try, try to distract us. And they would like be like, hey, let's go hang out and let's go to a party and get drunk together. <laughs> and we're just like, we're like, nice strategic. try, you know, nice try. We're just really focused on this thing. They, there are all sorts of underhanded tactics like that um, where, where you know, people get, get really into it. And so, um, but it was, it was so much fun. It was, it was a ton of fun. And at the end of the competition, you do this thing where you get up on stage in the main auditorium at MIT in front of hundreds of other students and your bots battle it out on stage uh, while you narrate live. And that year in junior in my junior year, um, you know, there are a few top teams and and we by, ended up getting lucky and, and winning the whole thing. And that was where, you know, kind of the world really opened up for me. It was like, wow, OK, you know, I found something in life that I'm really, really good at. And there's so much opportunity beyond it if you do it right. You know, I, you know, lots of high frequency trading firms became really interested in me and my work. Um, you know, I talked to a lot of startup founders. I talked to, you know, a bunch of big tech companies and it was just really fun. Was that, was that when Sunlight, your first baby was, was really born and, and no, that was the first company, correct? No, yeah. So Sunlight came, came a little while later. So I had really wanted to work with uh, one of the my uh, one of my close friends in the dorm and my current co-founder Curtis. And Curtis, at that time in junior year, he had already signed up to compete with a different team uh, for Battle Code. And so, and I was like really frustrated. I'm like Curtis, what the heck? Like, come join my team. Like, you know, we're gonna go dominate this thing and win. He's like, he's like a very loyal person. He's like, no, I already committed to these folks, and you know, I'm gonna go do it. And you know, and and it turns out he was the only one who actually did any work on his battle code team. And, and halfway through the competition, he's like, yeah, I should have I should have worked with you guys. <laughs> and so when it came time to, to go ahead and start a company, I was like, Curtis, you don't want to regret it. You want to make sure you join me for the next one. And so uh, come out and, uh, you know, work on me with something. And, and, and to his credit, you know, what he said was like, look, I really want to do work for a year first. And so I want to learn just the basics of what it means to be a professional in the industry. I want to go work at Google for a year. And then after that, I'll join you. And I was, man, if he goes to Google, like there's no way he's coming out. Like everyone who goes there who talks about starting a company never ends up going to start one and just ends up, you know, getting sucked into the Borg there. So, you know, what, what, what ended up happening is I was really excited about starting a company, but I didn't have a co-founding team yet. And I wasn't, so I ended up taking a detour for a year in finance first. I was in high frequency trading at this place called DRW. And I'd work nights and weekends where I just, you know, do side projects with different groups of people. Um, you know, I'd fly out to California to meet with folks and to, you know, just jam on ideas. We tried out all sorts of stuff that, that didn't work out. And it was just, you know, kind of, you're kind of kids out of college that don't know anything about what's valuable and what's not. And the idea was I'd keep working on Curtis and I'd make sure he, he was actually committed to leave. I, at one point I finally was like, okay, you know, nine months into the job, I was like, you know, I really want to 
go and do this. There's enough momentum. Like, let's go start something. I was just kind of itching to get out and, and put all my energy into that full time. And so I moved out from Chicago um, to California and I moved in with Curtis and I slept on a mattress on his bedroom floor. And I was like, you know, I'm not leaving until <laughs> until you leave Google and we go do this thing. And so, so, you know, and so he's like, yeah, all right, all right. Let me wrap up my year first and then I'll leave. And so he get to his year cliff. He left the job to his credit. He actually left and he joined me and we started working together. And it was awesome. The, the, the funny part was before we actually started, when it was just myself, it was like going from a full-time job to building a company um, where you're kind of all on your own and there's no one, there's no team you're working with. That was a really hard transition. I would like get up really late in the day. I'd like play video games all day, you know, and then like Curtis would like come home from his job at Google. And like, by the time, like, we was coming home. I'm like, man, I really better get something done before he comes home to like show him I'm actually working on stuff and I'm actually doing something. And so I'd code for like an hour or two. Um, and then I like, he'd come back and I'd be like, look at all the cool stuff I was working on today, even though <laughs> I hadn't done really much. So <laughs> it was, it was just kind of a funny, you know, it was, that was a, that was a really uh, kind of funny transition. And what was, what, what, what was that transition then from, because here you go, you get started with Sunlight and then obviously Sunlight ended up being the segue to to what you're doing with Amplitude now. So so walk us through that sequence of events. Yeah, so, you know, after finally Curtis left his job, we were like, all right, all this other stuff we're working on doesn't make sense. So, you know, we started on Sonalite. So Sonalite was a, a voice recognition app, uh, for those of you who don't know, that was, it was like a version of Siri, except for the Android phone. And it had this really cool feature where you could, it would listen in the background for your voice, you could talk to your phone, and then it would, uh, allow you to have a conversation to like send and receive text messages. So all the hands-free stuff that Siri does today, you know, we, we you know, we were actually, we did, we had did done that and launched it before Siri had launched. So we did that. That was, this was in, in 2000 and this, we started in 2011. Um, we got into Y Combinator, joined the winter 2012 batch. Um, I remember we had a really cool demo at demo day at Y Combinator where I, I, I got up on stage, I had my phone and I was like showing people my phone, I put it in my pocket, and I started to have a conversation with it. And people were like blown away. And we got the most press coming out of that demo day out of like 60, you know, now YC is a lot bigger, but there were 60 different companies at NYC at the time. And we had like 15 different press articles written for us, which for an early stage company was, was very impressive. It was like us and couple, there's this like one other um, app that were the kind of superstars in, in demo day. And the, the funny part of it was, was that even though we had gotten so much press and gotten so much coverage and all, you know, was kind of the, the one of the stars coming out of the batch, that didn't actually convert to building a real business. Um, we had major issues with retention and keeping our users around. You know, we, it wasn't like we were growing crazy quickly. And, you know, it was clear that the, the fundamentals of the app, you know, were not going to be a super viable long-term business. It was... Um, you know, we could have probably stuck it out and just grinded for a bunch of years, but it was clear that, you know, it was not going to be a great path to success. The voice recognition technology was just a little bit too early. And so we took that and we said, okay, you know, what else is there out there? And one of the things we had worked on was actually building our own analytics product internally at, at Sonalite. And the reason we built it, you know, it partly out of hubris, but you know, because we're like, oh, hey, we're smarter and better than there's anyone else. But partly because there were all these questions we wanted to answer 
about the user experience that we just couldn't get out of off-the-shelf tools like Google Analytics or Adobe or anything else in the ecosystem. And so we said, okay, like we wanted to answer, for example, how much does the accuracy of the voice recognition when you first use it matter and have an impact on the your long-term success? And as it turns out, um, it has a massive impact. Like, you know, if you have an accurate match on your first try, you're twice as likely to become a long-term successful user of the product than if you don't. Um, and that sort of insight, we had to kind of construct it out of uh, a bunch of custom SQL queries and, you know, our own database and all, and all of that in order to answer it. Um, but it gave us a lot of insight into what was important and what was not in the application. And so when it came time to shut down, so many other companies that we knew were like, wow, that's really amazing that you're able to get that level of insight uh, about your product. How is it that we can get the same thing? And so this time around, um, we made sure, okay, before we actually start building anything, let's just go talk to lots and lots of customers. So we set up 30 different interviews with potential customers, like just other companies in our batch and outside of it that we had met through the program. And we said, okay, is there a real need for this? Um, before we even started building anything. At the end of that, we we're like, wow, okay. You know, not everyone could be a potential user, but there's so much pain around this thing. If we can build something, we know that we can get people to pay for it. So we started that process in 2012. We spent about a year developing. I one of our biggest mistakes then was that we didn't actually launch the product. We took about a year and a half to really launch the product. I would have launched it much earlier and I would have gotten, I would have tried to get someone to pay for it much earlier. We were just begging people to use it at that point. We tried to, we raised a seed round of $2 million uh, back in 2013, back when $2 million was a lot of money. And, but that, that process was just absolutely brutal. Like I remember we were going around investor to investor, just basically asking them, you know, no real customers, no real traction, asking them to invest in me and Curtis as, as co-founders. And it was just brutal because like we're asking for 50K checks at a time from all these angels. And, you know, once in a while, every few weeks we get a yes. Um, but, you know, lots and lots of no's. And, you know, if you're ever trying to put together a million dollars, doing it $50,000 at a time, very, very painful way to do it. You need to, you know, and so eventually it did come together after about six months and, and we got the money done. How many investors were, were there? You know, as part of those 30 or so, 35, 30 to 35 different investors. And so we were really just asking anyone who was just willing to take a flyer and a bet on us, frankly. Did you have like any, any, any concerns, you know, around how that could impact the cap table with having so many people? Or maybe at that point you were not thinking about yeah, it? Yeah, I, I don't recommend it for sure. I mean, it was great to, to get so many people, you know, as investors as us, but the it's much harder to develop deep relationships and yeah. get a lot of leverage and get a lot of help from someone in a dedicated fashion. And so it's kind of like, you know, when you have so many people in like what we call a, what they call a party round, it's like no one's really invested in helping you succeed. Right. And so, you know, it's not like there was one person you would regularly talk to to get advice or anything like that. We we're kind of mainly operating on our own. Um, yeah, so I, I definitely don't recommend doing it um, if you can help it. I'm really appreciative to the folks who did invest us at, at, at the time, but it was it was much more painful to put that together, and it was you know harder to get leveraged help you know in terms of someone to get really deep on amplitude with us. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that you know for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone 
is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. And, and just so that the people that are listening to really get it, what, what ended up being the business model of Amplitude? Yeah, so we were going to do it as SaaS, where you would have charge for a recurring revenue based on how much you used Amplitude as a product. And, you know, SaaS was just a it's like the best business model of all time. You build this piece of infrastructure, you sell it, then people, you kind of get these, you get this growing base of dividends over time where it's very predictable what sort of revenue you're going to get in any one period. And so it's just a phenomenal business model that has a number of, of great characteristics about it. Um, you know, and, and the ecosystem back in, in 2013 was, was really, really early at the time. So yeah, I, I remember that the very first product that we sold the very first time we sold a product was was mid 2013 we're talking with i still remember this company 12 gigs um they did uh casino and slots app we go do the demo we get to the end of the conversation and the the cto of this company asked wow this is great how much does it cost and i'm like i was i was shocked because i'm like I'd never been asked for money for software before. It was like, you know, whoa, like someone wants to buy it. Like that blew my mind. It was like, you know, I don't have to beg someone to use it. Um, and I didn't even know, you know, what to, I, I didn't even have a number in mind or an idea. I was thinking something like $50 a month. Um, but I remember the advice where it's like, there's lots of advice about, you know, you should charge and ask for way more. And so I was like, what's the biggest number I can possibly think of? And I was like, $1,000 a month. And I like kind of put it out there. You know, I'm like, you know, See, waiting to see his reaction and be like, oh, that's too much. But what he said was like, oh, wow, that's really cheap. And I'm like, what? Like $1,000 a month is cheap. Like, this is amazing. Like all my dreams of like building software and having people pay money for it in that moment had been fulfilled uh, because you had someone who was willing to pay us $1,000 a month for our software. And it was just, it was just the most incredible experience. And now, like now I ask for like millions or tens of millions of dollars um, in contracts and the conversations I'm having and I had no problem with it. Um, but that moment still sticks out because it was the very first time someone had, you know, agreed to pay us money for, for our software. So, so we added Jeffrey at that point, you know, our, our third co-founder and then launched the company in 2014. I transitioned from the engineering and product side to the sales side full time. And then, you know, it was just, it just kind of started taking off from there. And for you guys, I mean, you were alluding to it before on the financing just to, to 
to expand on that. How much capital did you guys raise prior to the IPO? Head, but we've done a number of rounds. So we did seed, which was two million, Series A, which was eight. Uh, someone, someone listening can do the math. Uh, Series B, which was fifteen. Series C, which was thirty million dollars. Series D, which was eighty. It was eighty million, and then it was uh, Series E, which was fifty million, and then Series F, which was a uh, hundred million. So I don't know, a few hundred million in total uh, before we we went out to the to the public markets. That's Basically, kind of every year and a half or so, you know, we'd raise around another, you know, we'd kind of achieve beyond what we thought we would. Um, and then we'd raise another round of capital to help us to, to help us, you know, continue to fuel that growth. And then also quite the roster as well of um, of investors. You got Benchmark, Battery Ventures, Institutional Venture Partners, Sequoia Capital. I mean, you have like the who is who. It's like the Oscars of, uh, yeah. of venture investors. So, I mean, how, how were you able to really get all these guys involved? Yeah, um, you know, we're we're lucky to, you know, frankly, in a lot of ways, I think, um, just to go back to benchmark, I, you know, I didn't actually know who they were before I'd even met them. And I remember looking them up. And I'm like, wow, these are some of the best investors of all time, you know, Twitter, Zendesk, New Relic, Uber, Snapchat, you know, list Yelp, the list goes on, uh, Instagram, and I, so I, I, uh, you know, I remember meeting Eric and I gave him the pitch and, you know, we ended up connecting quite a bit. You know, he, he, he really looks for engineers, uh, you know, hardcore engineers, top, top engineers who are interested in building businesses and who have an aptitude for the business and, and go to market side. And so we just really hit it off and connected. Um, you know, they came in at the end of 2014 and, you know, I, I think honestly, it's been a huge part of our success. I, I talked to Eric like once a week. You know, he's been probably the number one coach and life mentor in a lot of ways of me, like, you know, going through, he's interviewed hundreds of people for us, um, you know, so many critical inflection points. He's helped me navigate as CEO of Amplitude from, you know, I had to be interim sales leader at one point at Amplitude in, in 2019 for about six months. He went around, he interviewed a bunch of sales leaders in his network to understand, hey, what does it take to do forecasting really well? kind of created this two page PDF for me, um, you know, help, you know, gave me kind of a template and guideline for how to do it, which was just phenomenal. Um, and so, you know, he's kind of been, he, he's, he's just been a massive help every step of the way. And, and we'd be a tiny fraction of the size if it, if it weren't for the work that he's put into, you know, help building amplitude. Um, so, you know, that was, so that was benchmark, you know, obviously, you know, tons of other phenomenal investors nearage at, at battery, you know, he's the, the godfather of SaaS and most prolific SaaS investor of all time. You know, he's been fantastic. Uh, Pat Grady at Sequoia, uh, one of the best growth investors of all time. You know, we really kind of, he was actually, Pat was really funny because he was, he pitched Amplitude to me better than I pitched it to him. That was the first time that happened with a VC where they had done a better job of pitching me my company. Um, Cause he actually had this thesis around the market and how product was going to become a distribution channel for companies um, and that, you know, we had the potential to be the center at it, of it if we did it right. Um, and so, you know, that was great. You know, IVP, Samesh at IVP, you know, tons of others. And so, yeah, I, I think we've just always had a very consistent long-term outlook on what it is, on who we are and what it is we're trying to do. Um, and, you know, we've been able to, to partner with just some, with some phenomenal talent out there um, on, on the venture side. Um, you know, I, I think the, the other thing I, I do want to say, like, you know, I think 
really for the early stage, I, the early stages of your business, investors can be quite leveraged if you get the right ones on board. Um, you know, Eric at Benchmark was really that for us. I think as you get larger and later stage, it, you know, you, you're kind of there's more there's an existing organization and an existing business, so that really becomes much less of a case. You know, let's talk about like taking the company public. So, what was that that experience like? You know, yeah. perhaps even 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 take us to the night before of ringing the bell. I mean, here you've been, you know, working your butt off and building this from nothing, and then all of a sudden you're going to sleep on the next morning. You know, it's time to ring the bell. Yeah, I mean, it's surreal. You know, for sure, it's it's an it's an outcome that so many people just dream of for such a long time. Uh, it's it was crazy. I mean, I didn't get much sleep the night before for sure. Um, I was so stressed that morning because we had to get up early and do a bunch of media interviews. You know, we were really lucky. We had a great team in place to just make the event run smoothly. And I just didn't have to worry about anything but being in the moment. You know, the opening bells sequence was awesome. We did like, a, you know, we got a lot of amplitiers. You know, one of my favorite parts was everyone who had been at the company for five or more years, we got to bring out um, to the celebration. You know, I think a lot of teams really make the celebration about the exec team or about the investors. And it was really for me about the folks who had built Amplitude. And so we invited like everyone who had been part of the journey up to that point uh, for five or more years to be part of that celebration. And it was just fantastic to, to be able to, to kind of celebrate it with them. Um, I think, um, yeah. And so that was, that was just surreal. I was, just, and then it, you know, it goes by so fast as well. Um, the other part, which was a lot of fun to me, was um, doing a direct listing. The way they opened the market, it's like, so, so you know, you probably, if 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 anyone's listened to me, you know, you you know that I'm very much in favor of direct listings, and I think it's almost criminal that people go out take companies public through any other method. Um, direct listings provide market-based pricing for your stock, which is really the point of going out to the public markets is you want market-based pricing. So why would you do a transaction that's not market-based with it? So, um, but um, I, because I had come from the finance world, I knew a lot about, or, you know, I knew a little bit about the mechanics and, you know, how markets actually work and, you know, how the inputs work. Um, and so I remember I did the session with all the folks who were there at the listing and kind of did an educational uh, thing that just helped them understand um, how it is the mechanics work and what to expect and what is a buy order, what is a sell order, how do they match in the market, how does that determine the price that something transacts at. And I remember I did this like 15 minute education session for the team. And, you know, it was one of the highlights for me because it was just, uh, you know, allowed me to bring them along the journey and educate them about, you know, how the process and, and how the thing worked. And so that was a ton of fun. Uh, that 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 was that was really a ton of fun, and just to celebrate it there with everyone, and um, you know, a lot of amplitiers, you know, just ended up coming out on their own to celebrate and be part of it, which was which was fun as well, and you know, it was crazy, and so it was it was it was you know, it was I, I think the the important the, the last thing I'll say about it is like the the thing you're really doing there is it's really the introduction of the company to the public markets, and so so many companies get that wrong. I, we have I've seen so many entrepreneurs get to that state, but then not really have clear direction on what's next for the company. And so we actually named our public listing project, Project Alpha, because we wanted people to internalize that it really was just the start of a new journey for the company and a start of what was next. Um, and so we did a, I think we did a really good job of, of kind of setting that message consistently um, with the company and, and the team. And so, you know, I think 
people understand that, look, you know, it's not like we get here, we're all done with the business to the end. It's like, no, this is where the expectations are highest. This is where we have the longest term outlook. This is where we're going kind of on the next stage of our journey to take on what's next in, in the market. So, um, you know, it really is the, the start of a new beginning and people have to be thinking like that's something that, you know, has been big for me personally, where it's like I'm thinking about how do I sign up for the next 10 years of this journey and how do I get everyone else around the table to, to do the same. And how big is the company today, Spencer? I mean, right now you are operating a company that the market cap is over $2 billion. How many employees do you have and anything else that, uh, that, that you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have 680 employees. You know, we've, uh, our run rate as a business has passed 200 million in ARR. Um, you know, the, the reason I, I, that's, that's really important for me to, to share is that I think so many companies really focus on the market cap or the number of employees. But again, those are just outputs. Anyone can hire out a team or build a team. And that, that's not that hard to do and spend a lot of money. The real hard thing is, can you create how much value do you create for your customers? You know, what is it that they care about? And so we've been hyper-focused and dialed in on, on that part, um, you know, since the start. And so whenever I, we have this joke at the company is like, whenever I ask someone how big Amplitude is, I want them to reply with how much revenue and how many customers we have. You know, we have over 1,600 customers and, you know, over $200 million run rate business. And so that's that's the important stat to me because that's a sign of how much problems we're solving and how much pain that that we alleviate and everything else and all the employee stuff is like you know that that kind of comes you know those employees are you know we as a team are, are there just to help that to just to help the the our customers be successful now obviously uh, remarkable uh, journey i mean tremendous um you know journey here but if you had the opportunity spencer of let's say going back in time and i put you into a time machine and i bring you back to that time that uh, you know you're trying to convince Curtis, you know, to really to really start something, and and you had the opportunity of having a sit down with that younger self, and and give that younger uh, Spencer one piece of advice, business advice before launching a company. What would that be, and why, given what you know now? That's a hard one. I I don't I don't know that I'd change that much. Um, you know, it's like we got very lucky in a lot of ways. And so it's like, you don't know what happens if you perturb stuff, I, I think. But I think, you know, I, there's some stuff that I think we got right that I, I was very conscious of trying to get in front of. And there's some stuff that I think I could have been better at and that I'd probably give myself advice. So this, the stuff that I think we really did get right was just talking to customers like all the time. You know, you should be spending, anyone in product should be spending, like product management should be spending half their time talking to customers, a CEO, a founder, even though I'm an engineer. Like as an engineer, you know the problems, you see problems and you know, hey, if I build this piece of software, I'll solve them. The part that you don't know is, is it a worthwhile problem to solve? And the only person who can tell you that is customers. And so you might have grand ideas of something you might want to build or an idea that you have, but without talking and spending half, half your time as a founding team should be talking to customers. And that was something we got wrong at Sonalite. We didn't really spend that much time. We spent you know, 80, 90% of our time building the product, um, but not that much talking to customers. Um, and so that was something with Amplitude I wanted to make sure to correct. And so we, I spent half my time before launch talking with customers. And after that, I spent all my time, you know, talking to customers and finding ones that, that were willing to buy the product. Um, so that, that's a really big one that I think we got right. The, the advice I'd have and the one that we were slow to is building out the executive team and getting more help there and getting help earlier. So the business has always done very well and grown incredibly rapidly. But 
as you grow and you scale, you need an organization that can keep up with it. And so I think we were a little naive in the early days and thinking like, oh, we can figure this all out. We're smart. But and like there was a lot that we did figure out, but there's also a lot of knowledge about how to do these things and how to build these things that already exists within the industry. And so if you leverage that, like that's like that knowledge that can speed up your learning much, much, much faster than you can learn yourself. And so I would have spent more time, like I would have advised myself to spend half your time meeting people in the industry and learning from them, building out the network and recruiting great talent. And that was something, you know, as an engineer, you, I, I'm an introvert and I'm going to, you tend to be very internally focused. So it's like, what are the problems that we have? What can we do to solve them here? Um, and you don't spend a lot of time learning best practices from others and going out and seeking expert knowledge. And that would have been something that I changed, you know, and would have been advice. It's like really talk to people outside and recruit, you know, executives who have done this before um, and spend a lot more time there. I, I remember I, I kind of look, would look at like spending time on the outside dismissively. I'm like, oh, those people aren't building their business. But there's actually a lot of value and a lot of knowledge on these problems. You know, you want to go, you don't want to just be in the scene to be in the scene, but you want to meet people who can have perspective on what it means to company build the challenges you get into when scaling sales or engineering or product or, you know, finance or what have you. And so that would have been somewhere I would have advised my younger self to spend more time. Once we had a company, I think before you have a company, just talk to customers and talk to uh, build product. That's it. You know, Paul Graham's very right on that. It's like, you know, talk to your users, build your product. That's it. You know, you don't want to be spending, you know, less than 10% of your time can be going to anything else. But once you start to grow um, and scale, the only way to do that um, is through bringing in leaders from the outside. And so you want to be playing offense on that and being very deliberate about who you bring in and how and, and why they're a good match for the business. I love it. And Spencer, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? You know, so I think a few different ways. So feel free to you know follow me <laughs> on Twitter or anything like that. Uh, send me an email at spenceramplitude.com. I can't guarantee I will reply to it, but I do look at everything that comes into that. Um, the other big one is if you want to meet us in person, we're hosting our customer conference Amplify in Las Vegas uh, from May 24th to 26th. So I'll be there. I'll be speaking. Um, if you come to me to meet with me at Vegas, I will guarantee you we'll get a, at least a chance to say hi. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that, that's that's another great way if, if you want to come come meet up with me in person. Amazing. Well, Spencer, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us. Alejandro, it's been fantastic having you here. Uh, hopefully what I've shared today is helpful to the listeners as you all think about building companies and what it means to, to build a great company. Uh, really appreciate this chance to share the story. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.